Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have left me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And if you leave me questions, I'm just going to keep saying this <laughs> to let people know as they come onto my channel. If you leave me questions on my Critical Clips channel or you send them to me on Twitter or you send them to me on Facebook or something or some other way, you know, I'm not necessarily going to put them in my queue. I might not see them. I'm not looking for them there. I don't pay attention to them there. I'm looking for them in the emails to askchrisshelton at gmail.com or in the comment section of these Q&A videos. All right. So that's where to put your questions, and I am more than happy to get to them. I have this very long, extensive queue of questions, and I am getting through them as quickly as I can. And they just keep coming, which is awesome. And I also want to encourage people to send me flash answer questions. I'm building up a little queue of those so that we have those going again every single week like we will this week. So uh, keep those coming in, too. Um, I hope you guys got a chance to watch my podcast this week. It was a little bit of a, you know, what happens when you hit the ex-cult world and you run into, you know, skepticism, atheism, and humanism, and thisism, and thatism, and the otherism, and, you know, this kind of thing. And what, what about that mindset? And what about running into uh, problems with people who still act a little culty after they come out of a cult? You know, moi included. Uh, you know, it's not helpful to tell somebody, well, you never left the cult. That's just insulting and degrading, and it's not a helpful statement. However, that doesn't mean there isn't a little bit of truth connected with it. And so you can help somebody in that situation. You can help somebody who is still sort of, uh, you know, operating on old habits, you could say. Um, but there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. And anyway, we kind of talked, me and a friend of mine, uh, Mark, talked about that a bit this week. So if you're interested in any of what I was just talking about, then check out that podcast. And, of course, our critical uh, conversations, the live show this week, we talked a little bit about love in and out of cults and the sort of obsessive-compulsive kind of love that one experiences when they're in a cult. So we had some fun with that, and I hope you guys will check that out, too. That all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Nick, when were Sunday services introduced in Scientology? Was it before you left or after? If before, have you ever attended, and if so, what did you think? Based on what you know, what do practicing Scientologists think about them? What's their current status in Scientology? Are they still held? Or have they been suspended because of COVID? If so, do you think Scientology would eventually hold them again or forget they ever existed and erase them from the official history? Thanks for this question, Nick. Uh, I have broken down in the past in some detail the exact anatomy of a Sunday service in Scientology, all the steps they go through. And you can find it, you can even find that clip on my Critical Clips channel. So I'm not going to repeat the whole anatomy of what a Sunday service in Scientology is, but I will address each of your questions. Um, Sunday services, as I understand it, were introduced quite some time ago. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard created uh, the creed of the church and um, marriage ceremonies and rituals, a funeral arrangements, that kind of thing, way back in the 1950s when um, they needed to submit all of that kind of thing and put the religious trappings and sort of um, smoke and mirrors, right, the, the, the curtains, right? 
of, um, in other words, the, the religious veneer that Scientology maintains is really just that. It's a veneer. It's just a cover story. And most Scientologists even know that. They don't really think about Scientology as a religion in the same way that Christians or um, uh, Jews or uh, Muslims would think about their religion as a religion. Scientologists don't, they just don't think that way. It's more about doing, 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 and of course, paying, paying, paying at this point with all of the money that is required to do Scientology. Very, very different from the attitude and spirit of what goes on in other churches. It's really kind of a, uh, it's a very different kind of beast. And I only emphasize that because, uh, to continue with your answer here, um, while the Sunday services were introduced or perhaps that was part of the whole thing that came down in the 50s and various lectures and various things were put together that would be, uh, this was around the period of the Golden Dawn. This was Phoenix, Arizona. This was Hubbard trying to uh, put on a good public face and get Scientology known as a religion because he had to create this whole other entity separate from the whole Dianetics thing. Dianetics had tanked. It was a whole fiasco. And he was now starting anew with this religion of Scientology. Uh, okay, so that's kind of its origin story or its roots. Now, as far as, um, but regular Sunday services being maintained in churches ever since then, not quite. Because this is kind of a smoke and mirrors religious cloaking activity, the Scientologists really only do it when they need to or told to or ordered to. And for very, very, you know, for a very long time, they didn't um, or would go in and out, that kind of thing. Um, have I, uh, so this was all developed and figured out when I was still a Scientologist, that that was still a thing. And, I, and if it sounds a little loosey-goosey and a little like, you know, what, what are you saying, Chris? I'm saying that sometimes Sunday services would be held and sometimes they wouldn't be. Most of the time, not. You know, I never experienced a Sunday service in Scientology until the year 2000. Uh, because that was when Miscavige decided to resuscitate the entire program and put that whole religious veil right slam it back in in Scientology and they had a little tiny book I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use my fingers here to indicate it was about a centimeter thick book called the background and ceremonies of Dianetics and Scientology or Scientology I should say not Dianetics so they had this little thin book and that had the sermons or works or you know articles or whatever connected with Sunday services and being a minister and doing services, the, the marriage ceremonies were in there, the funeral services were in there. So, so I don't even know actually, and I didn't have a copy of the book to go back and look and see if there were formalized Sunday service sermons in that old background ceremonies book. But in the new one that was released in the year 2000, it was extended out to be about this thick. It was big, huge tome. It was like two inches thick. And it was made to be and look impressive. Big leather bound, great big cross on the cover, the background and ceremonies of the Church of Scientology. You know, and, and Miscavige decided to uh, really slam dunk this whole thing. Not only was the book released, but there were actually management people put on post 
whose job was to administer or oversee the administration of Sunday services around the world. And these were called the Sunday service ICs. And uh, people were made to start doing Sunday services every week in every church. And this was monitored by attendance figures, how many people attended and how many, you know, this and how much that. And various statistics were put together to kind of track and enforce this. Um, so after that, I and everybody else was attending Sunday service for a while, even on the PAC base and the Sea Org base, Sunday services were mandatory. And so every Sunday morning, we had to cut into our CSP time, our laundry time, in order to go and be part of this, because they would hold them around 1130 or, you know, noon or something like that. Um... And as per the anatomy of it, there was a sermon and there was a little group processing and various things. And like I said, you can go check out that other, that other video for that breakdown. Um, as far as what did I think, I thought they were tedious and boring. And I thought the group processing was rather torturous. I really did not enjoy it at all. The whole look at the ceiling, look at the floor, look at the wall. You know, you did this group series of commands to the entire assembly and um, this is supposed to kind of be done enough to kind of get you out of your head and make you feel good, have a, you know, have a little, you know, oh, wow, I feel so great now. But they continually just ran it and ran it and ran it. I mean, I sat for like an hour doing these process commands with everybody else in the room. And you could tell everybody was just, get us out of here, right? And they finally wrapped it up. And that happened over and over again. So, um, so based on what I know, you know, what do I think practicing Scientologists think about them? Same thing I did. Nobody liked them. It's, and, and that's why I tried to stress earlier that nobody's really thinking about Scientology that way. So Sunday service is kind of a, a okay, I guess, you know, nobody really kind of really wants to go. And when they do hold them, they'll have to kind of go around and round people up from around the building or something and get them to, you know, kind of cajole them into going. Uh, so generally speaking, if a Sunday service was held, say, at a city-level church, you might have three or four people at it. Most of them staff, right? Uh, sometimes public show up for them. Sometimes public get a little interested in them. Um, but, you know, it's hardly an avenue for proselytization or dissemination of Scientology. Nobody comes in through the Sunday service line, you know, and maybe Miscavige envisioned that they would, but they don't. That's just not how that works. Um, so nobody really likes them very much. And as far as their current status, okay, so... Um, they were suspended because, of course, orgs closed and then group gatherings were not cool. And so Sunday services were not being held for a while. They are being held again. I saw an ad for one uh, last week at Flag. And I see various uh, Mike Rinder posts on every Thursday. He gets collections of promotional materials from various churches around the world in Scientology and he'll post them. And so I saw some flyers or advertisements for Sunday services being held in various places. And so, yes, it is still a thing and they are still randomly done, but the whole Sunday service, I, you know, in charge thing and, and keeping track of it so closely, all of that was, you know, 20 years ago, nobody cares now. So, uh, so I understand that they are still held randomly from time to time and place to place. But again, nobody's really, you know, uh, tearing down the doors to get in or be part of those. They are boring as hell. Uh, I can't stand Scientology Sunday services. They are, they are just, they're boring. That's really the best word I can use for it. You know, tedious even. 
Uh, okay. Do I think Scientology will hold them again or forget about them? I think that they're just going to kind of continue sort of putter, putter, puttering along, you know, randomly being held uh, for as long as necessary or, as, you know, as, as long as people are still kind of semi-interested in them and at the individual church level. If there is a need for Scientology to put its best foot forward as a religious organization that is truly a church, then you'll see, you know, orders come down again and everybody dutifully marching into the chapel on Sunday to be part of the Sunday service. But again, it's going to fall right out of place because there is no bridge progress. There is no permanent gain. There is no real reason for any Scientologist to go to a Sunday service. It's not moving them to clear or OT. It's not helping them or teaching them anything new. And the, uh, the group processing tends to be, like I said, rather torturous. So, so for all of those reasons, ain't nobody got time or interest in Sunday services in Scientology. And that's really kind of the, 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 the bottom line with it. So I hope that gives you a, a completer picture of what's going on with that. AC. The military has preferred postings, such as Hawaii. Is there such a thing in the Sea Org? Are there places highly sought after or places to be avoided? Thanks for this question, AC. Um, there were, at least. I can't speak now because I've been out for 10 years, so I don't know what the current cultural norms in Scientology are in regards to this, what kind of aspirations people have as to where they want to go. I can take some guesses, though. So what I'll tell you is that when I was in, it was very, very big deal to go up to gold, up to int management, right, in, in, in San Jacinto. Now, we didn't even know it was in San Jacinto. We just knew it was up lines, and that was the place to go. That was considered heaven on earth as far as Scientology was concerned. At least that's what we kept being told. This is the place where Miscavige was initially found busted, or um, rather this was where Miscavige was when he was initially beating and pounding on people. Uh, Jeff Hawkins worked there, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathman, all those guys, all those ex-international executive people came out of that San Jacinto facility. And so it was very, very, very far from heaven on earth, but that was the PR line that we were all being fed. So if you went up lines to, you know, gold or to int, then um, that was, you know, you were going to be breathing rarefied air and it was going to be amazing and everything was going to be perfect and on policy and on source and it was going to be wonderful. And of course, now we know that it was the exact opposite. And it's almost to the point now where when I hear things, uh, even out in the real world that are, you know, these glowing testimonials, you know, or whatever, I'm always like, mm-hmm. Really? Or is it the opposite of that, right? But especially in the world of Scientology, you can count on it. If they're, if they're praising it and, and, and can't shut up about it, it was awful. Um, okay, so that was a place, though, that was sought after, and you had to become qualified to go there. You couldn't just pick up and go. They had to clear. You had to go through a whole security clearance, and you had to get their blessing in order, before you could be posted up at the international base. Uh, the Free Winds was also a place, the ship, uh, that was a place where people wanted to go. Uh, apparently the food was amazing and the atmosphere was great and everything was wonderful about it. And, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, again, same kind of drill right now. We find out the ship is the place where they, you know, held Valeska Paris hostage for years and various other people. And, you know, it was kind of worse than the RPF and 
just awful, awful conditions and awful, awful people there uh, to work for. Um, but that didn't, you know, but that again, wasn't leaking around in the Sea Org. Everybody in the Sea Org thought, oh my God, free ones, that would be an amazing place to work. I, I certainly thought so, but um, there was that. Um, as far as physical locations, you know, maybe Flag, Clearwater, right? Because that's supposed to be a hot trot place, biggest org in the world. Miscavige is often around there. So, you know, the idea is, you know, the, the, the PR line is, oh boy, Flag, that would be, that'd be the place to work, right? Uh, as opposed to the pack base, uh, Slack Pack, right? The place you don't necessarily want to go. Um, you know, the reputation of Big Blue was, uh, very, you know, up and down through the years. But the thing about Big Blue is that's where all the money was made. Big, big money place for a very long time. Not, not so much now, but back when I was in, that was that we, we were constantly competing with, with flag over, over money. Not on a weekly basis, but the, the events and the sales and stuff like that. That's how we would compete. On a weekly basis, nobody can keep up with flag. In Clearwater, that, that place is producing you know, more money than any other single Scientology entity. Uh, which is again one of the reasons people want to go there is because you know the idea of bonuses or you know uh, time off or anything like that. You know, f if you're in the fantasy delusion world of the Sea Org, you think Flag is the place you're gonna maybe get those things, and of course you arrive there and find out it's nothing like that. But you know, it's all that, and this really speaks. I hope I'm getting maybe by implication here. I hope I'm getting across just how siloed. The information is even within the bubble world of Scientology so that you have these horrific, awful abuses happening at Flag or at Int or at these other places, but nobody will talk about it. Nobody lets other people know. It's not like people ever got busted out of the Int base and spread around. Oh, man, you do not want to go there, right? Oh, man, that's the worst place to work. Don't ever. No, you could never get away with saying stuff like that. So you have to toe the line in keeping the reputation of these places going. And that's how it was when I was in. Now, I believe the place, the hot place to go would be Scientology Media Productions, the place that produces the Scientology TV and all of Scientology's video, audio, promotional materials. That all is done by SMP, which is the uh, TV station studio space that they bought in Los Angeles. It's about a mile away from the big blue base. A pack base. And um, that's a place you have to be cleared for, just like with uh, the Gold Studio. And it's the hot trot place to be. Miscavige hangs out there a lot. Apparently, it's the, uh, the in place to work. So I imagine that in the Sea Org, that might be considered a really hot posting at this point. But, you know, given uh, everything we know about what's been happening in Scientology lately, I I don't even know if that is a thing anymore, that there's a hot place to go or people are excited. You know, it might just be, well, anywhere than where I am because here sucks, right? So send me anywhere else and I'll be happy, right? Uh, so that, you know, is probably the state of things at this point. Um, and that's pretty much all I can do to speak on that. In terms of, uh, I will say also in terms of geographical locations like Hawaii or Australia or something like that, not really. You know, we knew when I was in that Australia was sort of a place people got sent to a little bit. So, uh, which is, you know, kind of classic Australian stereotype, right? The old prison uh, colony, right? 
I mean, not that uh, that's Australia now, but historically speaking, that's still a current thing in Scientology. <laughs> as horrible as that sounds. Um, so I was never really hot to go to Australia. Um, never heard of anything like that. Yeah, not really. Not in terms of places, you know, or countries or locations, you know. I never really heard of anything in the Sea Order Scientology about, you know, good, good, you know, that you really wanted to go there versus where you were at. Not really so much, at least nothing that's coming to mind right now. So, I, I don't know. I hope that's informative. There, there you go. Matthew, can you tell us why celebrities don't show up on the list of high donors or get awards from the IAS? I would think that at least some of the celebs donate at the same levels as the other public donors, and I would think that David Miscavige would want to show off their donations to the other members of the IAS. Is this a deliberate choice on the part of Scientology to keep their donations secret, or is this a choice on the part of the celebrity to opt out of receiving an award for their donation? All right, Matthew, I'm going to say that my answer to this is going to be it's on the choice of the celebrities. Uh, they have a brand image recognition issue that they need to keep uh, front and center at all times. And the advanced mags and other news outlets, the printed media, in other words, that Scientology produces, in order to show these donations and show membership levels with the IAS and stuff like that, that could leak out into the public, right? That could get into onto TMZ. That could get, you know, onto celebrity media even. And they don't want any of that. And so for so so I'm thinking my you know, my take on this is that for brand management purposes, celebrities often in Scientology will downplay or ask that their names not be used in talking about specific amounts of money or membership levels or anything like that. And so people pretty much kind of assume that celebs are at the top of the list and, you know, in all things, unless they see their names otherwise. And some celebrities had no problem with it. Some were routinely listed in there and others were not. So it's not a blanket thing. It's not like no celebrity ever is listed in the in the honor roles or membership roles of the IAS or other um media that Scientology puts out. But when the celebrity doesn't want their name up, the celebrity doesn't have to have their name up, right? They're not going to get into a big argument with celebs about that because the celebrity is, you know, through their actions and dissemination and all that kind of stuff, they are bringing new people in and they're VIPs and VIPs in Scientology get what they want more easily than your run-of-the-mill uh, Scientologist who isn't contributing millions of dollars to the church. So that's kind of how, how that works. Karen Pardo. I was wondering about L. Ron Hubbard's grandson. Does he have one? We hear from his son, who changed his name, and his great-grandson, who recites poetry. What about the generation in between? All right. Thank you for this question, Karen. And i um, been sitting on this one for a while because it involved me having to go and look into Hubbard's family tree. And... Hubbard's family tree is long and complicated, and I didn't actually trace every line all the way down. In fact, what I found was kind of interesting because what you have is you have L. Ron Hubbard had three different wives, and he had children with each of them. He had a total of seven children. He only claimed ownership of four of them. Hubbard Hubbard was a serial philanderer and a bit of a monster when it came to being a father and a responsible father at that. Um, so... 
Uh, he was married to Margaret Louise uh, Grubb, and they had two kids, Catherine and Ron DeWolf. And Ron DeWolf is the grandfather of Jamie DeWolf. And uh, now Ron DeWolf, Nibs, is, was what he was gone by, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., He's the one who worked under L. Ron Hubbard, uh, and he blew, took off from Scientology in 1959, and L. Ron Hubbard never forgave him. And in fact, that's where security checking came into the fore, is after Nibs took off. Hubbard decided that he was going to become obsessive about finding out everybody's secrets after his own son betrayed him after about eight years of working for him directly and building up Scientology. Nibs was a crucial part of Scientology's history. So when he took off in 59, uh, Hubbard was pissed and they pursued him for the rest of his life and made his life a bit of a hell. And he had a lot of back and forth and would, and a lot of the stuff we know about Hubbard's private life came from Nibs's writings, uh, but he would renege on those because he needed money and the church would pay him off. And then he, you know, and he did that back and forth a couple times. I think there was a Hustler magazine article or Playboy interview. And uh, no, it was Hustler, I think. And I, I've never read that one yet. Uh, and there were other things. There was L. Ron Hubbard, Mad Men or Messiah, which was written by Bent Corden, but apparently Nibs was cooperating at some point on that venture and then the church paid him off again so um so he had a very very tumultuous relationship with his father and with the church as a whole now Rhonda wolf went on nibs went on to have one two three four five six children and i don't know which of those children i couldn't find out who jamie dewolf's parents are that's not in his wikipedia page it's not in family trees or genealogy that i could find so he's been keeping that pretty close to the vest. But one of Nibs's six kids is obviously Jamie DeWolf's father and mother. Um, and or mother, right? Because they, they had, um, Nibs had uh, Alexander, Deborah, Eric, Esther, Harry, and Leif. Those are his six kids. And one of them is the, uh, is the parent of Jamie DeWolf. Now, um, Hubbard also had... Uh, a daughter with uh, Sarah Elizabeth Northrup, or, or Betty, and that was uh, that's his second wife, and that daughter is Alexis Valerie Hubbard, and Hubbard totally disowned her, told her to her face, or rather via writing, in a letter that she was not his daughter, and and just basically acted like a complete asshole to her. Um, so that's that one. Now Alexis, I think, has had kids. I didn't go diving into her uh, family history. I don't know how much. It, I couldn't really find much, actually. It's not a whole lot of public record on that that I could find, at least in the short time I spent researching this question. Um, and then finally, Hubbard had his third and final wife, Mary Sue. And with her, he had Diana, Suzette, uh, Jeffrey Quinton Hubbard, and Arthur Hubbard. Okay. Um, I know Diana is still in the Sea Org, as far as I know, and I and um, I believe she had a daughter, and she's not in Scientology, and I don't know anything further than that. Um, Jeffrey Quentin Hubbard, Quentin uh, was the one who committed suicide in 1976. Uh, Suzette Hubbard, his other daughter, uh, married a guy named Guy White. Married a guy, his name was Guy, and they had a son named Tyson. 
Uh, so that's another one of Hubbard's uh, grandchildren. And then there was Hubbard's son, Arthur. And I don't know if Arthur did or didn't have any kids. So that's basically the breakdown that I could find if you could follow all that. Uh, I, I didn't produce a graph or a family tree or something for you on this. I, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's kind of like well, when you have seven kids, your odds are you're going to have a whole lot of grandkids. So to answer your question, um, Karen, yeah, of course he's got grandkids. And I, no, I don't know who they are or what their deal is. But uh, very few of them, if any at this point, are actually connected with or loyal to the Church of Scientology. Uh, David Miscavige wanted to get the Hubbard family completely the hell out of Scientology after he took over. The only one he kept around was Diana, as far as I know, uh, for any length of time. And the rest of the family is out, doesn't want anything to do with it, hates the family name, et cetera, as far as I understand it. That's what Jamie talks about in his acts when I've seen them. So, you know, so as far as I can tell, most of them have done everything they can to separate themselves from Hubbard and his disgraceful name. And that's why you have DeWolf and various other last names uh, throughout the family tree here. So... That's what I can speak to about that, and I hope that that little bit of information is maybe will you know you can go do your own research on that, check it out. But that's what I can uh, speak to about. Two bit color pencil. I read someone's comment about the Will and Jaden Smith vehicle after Earth, about the connections they saw with the plot and characterization to Scientology and their philosophy. I was also fascinated when watching the demonstration of what I understand are techniques used in Scientology when watching the film The Master. Have you watched these films? If you have, what can you say about their relationship to the Church of Scientology and its philosophy? Are there any other films, not documentaries, which you believe have a hidden or overt connection to Scientology? All right. Thank you for this question. And I have not seen After Earth, but I heard that there was a big volcano scene of some kind and people were relating that back to Dianetics. And I can't speak rightly, you know, to the to whether that was a correct supposition or not. But apparently there was some volcanic imaging in that movie that people related back to Dianetics. You know, I don't know. Uh, as far as the master goes, though, okay, now I've done a whole video review of that, and the master is wall-to-wall -wall Scientology. I mean, I, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson can claim that it's not based on L. Ron Hubbard or Scientology or that, you know, there is no Scientology in it. But as far as I'm concerned, the guy who made, wrote and made the film is lying because <laughs> there is absolutely nothing but Scientology in that movie. Um, and that is uh, a very kind, by the way, interpretation of L. Ron Hubbard in that movie. And a very kind interpretation of Mary Sue as L. Ron Hubbard's uh, wife in the movie, uh, played by Amy Adams. They are way downplayed. And I really wish that Paul Thomas Anderson had explored more of the dark side of L. Ron Hubbard through his um, Lancaster Dodd creation, because what he did not show in that movie were the bouts of depression and anger and self-hatred, self-loathing, really, and the anger he would demonstrate toward his family and friends. It came out a little bit. He had a couple public displays of anger that annoyed and upset people, but it was nothing compared to the way L. Ron Hubbard really was. 
Um, so wall-to-wall -wall Scientology in terms of the techniques that were shown, you see objective processing, you see uh, you know, him asking uh, questions in an auditing session type format, even though they're using questions lifted off of the personality test, which I was very amused by. So, um, so again, yes, there's Scientology in there, but it's not necessarily what you might call pure Scientology. Scientology, as administered in the real world, looks a little different than what they're showing in the movie. But that being said, what's in the master is the most accurate representation I've ever seen of anybody even try to show what an auditing session or what Dianetics and Scientology auditing actually look like. So... So kudos to PTA for that. Um, as far as other films, I've mentioned before, Swordfish is a, a movie John Travolta was in. And that movie has a couple little snippets, one in particular about the ethics of Scientology, greatest good and that sort of thing. The Travolta character makes an argument to um, Stanley as played by Hugh Jackman. Uh, in the third act, in the later part of the movie, um, Travolta is, uh, Travolta's character is justifying his actions, his murderous actions, with Scientology ethics. And I thought that was interesting. And I noted that right away when I, I was a Scientologist when I first saw that movie. I was like, oh, wow. And, of course, uh, seeing it after the fact, I was like, oh, wow. Anyway, so there is that. And let me see. Other movies with Scientology or a hidden or overt connection. Of course, there's um, uh, Bowfinger. That's it, 1999. So that was a satirical movie, and that had a satirical take on Scientology, not a direct connection to it. It was more of a satirical connection to it. They were making fun of Scientology. And, of course, we see that in other movies where they take pot shots at it. Um, but as far as Scientology content in the movie... Those are the ones that come to mind straight away for me. So uh, there's my answer for you. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. I was watching a channel called The Vile Eye, where they dissect the motivations of comic book villains. Thanos, the main villain in Marvel's Avengers movies, was a titan that wanted to solve overpopulation by casual genocide. Did this ever strike you as a similarity between Xenu and Thanos? Is this just a weird Easter egg or parallel thinking? You know, Jonathan, I doubt that they are connected in any way. Xenu uh, was a myth that Hubbard created in 1967 while he was uh, otherwise drug-addled, as I understand it. And Thanos was a titan created in the comic books uh, earlier than that. He first appeared in Iron Man, I think you had mentioned in uh, some of the um, question that you sent me. I edited that part out. <laughs> I do that sometimes, uh, just for brevity's sake, that kind of thing. But Thanos is a cartoon comic book character, and maybe Hubbard was inspired by that. Maybe he wasn't. It's pure conjecture. I don't know. And neither does anybody else, because the last thing Hubbard was ever going to admit to, to anybody, is that he was uh, cribbing ideas from comic books. So what we can really, all we can really say here is that it's an interesting coincidence, and the idea that a supervillain in a comic book is going to engage in casual genocide is far from only Thanos 
Thanos having done that. Just about every supervillain in the world uh, has at one time or another threatened the very existence of everybody on Earth or in the universe. So it's a pretty common trope among supervillains, to be honest. And that's why I don't really get too excited about drawing these kind of direct connections. Even, even when one of those comic villains is named Xenu, which is the case uh, in a comic from the early 1960s. There's a, a baddie named Xenu, and then, oddly enough, Hubbard comes up with a baddie named Xenu. Coincidence? Maybe. Hard to say. But, uh, but there's my flash answer for you. Travis, would you go to a 90s band reunion festival? If so, who would you like to see perform? Thanks for this question, Travis. I actually did a little research on your question before I answered, because I was like, 90s bands, hmm, I don't really, hmm, because I was in the Sea Org through most of the 90s, or Scientology staff. I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to the music scene in that decade, to be honest with you, just a little bit here and there. And of course, I recognize all the songs of the 90s now, but I, you know, I don't really have fond memories and identif you know, identification with uh, good times, you know, connected with music in the 90s. That all being said, I went through and looked at, you know, 90s bands that should have reunion tours or something, and I didn't see one that I would be interested enough to want to go see in a concert live. I just, I just didn't. So I guess my answer is none. Leo Taxel. What are some crazy things Hubbard actually did besides conning people? All right, Leo, thank you for this question. I will say some crazy things. Um, Hubbard traveled extensively as, as a youth. Uh, he got to sail around the Atlantic, get over to Guam, China, Indonesia, these areas. Uh, I thought that was pretty crazy. He was a legit gl a glider pilot, a barnstormer. I think in the 1920s or 30s, he, he definitely did do those things, flew around the United States. He was kind of slacking off, blowing away, blowing off college and, and university and other endeavors that he should have been engaged in. But he was a legit, you know, glider pilot. And of course, he uh, had some misadventures out on the ocean. There was a Caribbean motion picture expedition that was a complete disaster. Uh, he sailed down with a bunch of uh, kids that had paid him, I think, 250 bucks each or something. And the whole thing was kind of like the Fry Festival, I mean, or the Fire Festival. It was, it was awful. It was like a complete disaster from day one forward. And it was all on Hubbard because he was the one who organized it and put it all together. So I guess, uh, I guess that's kind of a crazy thing that he did. Um, and another crazy thing he did, the last one I'll say, is he wrote a book in 1938 or around that time period after having some monumentous epiphany after nearly dying in a dental operation. And he wrote a book called The Black, uh, The Dark Sword or uh, Excalibur. And this book apparently was something he said was going to be more popular and uh, bigger than the Bible. He did not think small, Hubbard. And of course, that was rejected out of hand by anybody who looked at it. I'm sure it was just as obscure and obtuse and bizarre as the Dianetics book is. Uh, if you ever try to read Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, you know what I'm talking about. That book is insanely hard to read because it's so poorly written and the ideas are so half-formed and half-baked. Um, same with, I'm sure, uh, The Dark Sword. But we don't know. We've never seen it. No copies are around for anybody to see. 
we believe there might be a couple uh, copies up in the Elrond Elrond Hubbard archives. Uh, deep in the bowels of the Church of Scientology, but no, it hasn't seen the light of day uh, since back in the 1930s or 40s. So that is, um, those are some answers for you. All right. So that's our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around, everybody, and listening to me blabber on here. I hope these answers were interesting, informative, and entertaining, and I hope you will support the channel. All right. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.